Good morning, uh, my name's Annabelle. I'm one of the leaders here at Woodville Baptist. Welcome to Woody Online. We're continuing with our uh, series on Amos and uh, that concludes next week. Um, Marv is going to be looking at the end of Amos, which is uh, much more hopeful than some of the recent weeks have been. And I have to say, I'm rather relieved. Today's passage is rather dark. <laughs> so let's pray first and then we'll read the word and then we'll get into it. So, Father God, we just ask that you would help us to hear what you want us to hear from this passage, Lord. Amen. OK, so we're looking at Amos chapter 9, verses 1 to 10. So the first half of, of Amos 9. And it says, I saw the Lord standing by the altar and he said, strike the tops of the pillars so that the thresholds shake. Bring them down on the heads of all the people. Those who are left, I will kill with the sword. Not one will get away, none will escape. Though they dig down to the depths below, from there my hand will take them. Though they climb up to the heavens above, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, there I will hunt them down and seize them. Though they hide from my eyes at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent to bite them. Though they are driven into exile by their enemies, there I will command the sword to slay them. I will keep my eye on them for harm and not for good. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, he touches the earth and it melts, and all who live in it mourn. The whole land rises like the Nile, then sinks like the river of Egypt. He builds his lofty palace in the heavens and sets its foundation on the earth. He calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land. The Lord is his name. Are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites, declares the Lord? Did I not bring Israel up from Egypt, the Philistines from Kaphta and the Aramaeans from Kir? Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Yet I will not totally destroy the descendants of Jacob, declares the Lord. For I will give the command and I will shake the people of Israel among all the nations as grain is shaken in a sieve and not a pebble will reach the ground. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword. All those who say disaster will not overtake or meet us. OK, so. You may be somewhat relieved to hear that this is our final vision in Amos. And what we find is that of a different nature than what we've seen before. It's as if the curtain is being pulled back and we're clearly being shown the reality of the coming destruction. No more pictures and, and word imagery now. But first, let me start with a story. So 180 years previously to Amos, Jeroboam I led off the 10 northern tribes to create the nation of Israel, separate from Judah. He came into his kingdom on a wave of popular feeling because people were disaffected by Solomon and various things had happened. But Jeroboam was worried that if people kept making pilgrimages back to Jerusalem, then they would remember the good old days of David and eventually they would cast him off. So he did something that became known as the sin of Jeroboam, which was that he used religion in the interests of politics. We can probably look around the world and easily see that happening still today. What he did was to create a false feast, which took place on the 15th day of the eighth month, mimicking <clears throat> one of the proper feasts in Judah. 
and he himself presided at the altar. Now, this was the priest's job and not the king's, and yet here he was. This is all found in 1 Kings 12, if you want to check it out. Now, we come back to Amos, and we have, interestingly, a different Jeroboam on the throne. And in chapter 8, which Justin covered last week, we saw another festival of ripe fruits on the 15th day of the 8th month. But this time, today, who is at the altar? Well, verse 1 says, I saw the Lord standing by the altar. The Lord is now in his rightful place. Mocha says that the counterfeit is replaced by the real, the human by the divine, the king who came to prop up his dynasty by the king with a capital K who had come to throw it down. The day of pretense was over and the war on pretense had begun. So we see God in his rightful place in this passage and now he is bringing down the temple on people's heads, which is reminiscent of Samson, although of course Samson pulled it down from underneath and here we see God pushing it down from above. And in verse 2, we see that there's no supernatural refuge. We can't go up to heaven, or they rather couldn't go up to heaven or to hell. In verse 3, there was no natural refuge, whether it be the top of a mountain or the bottom of the sea. And in verse 4, there's no political refuge. So whether it's the serpent of the deep or the sword of an enemy, there is a reckoning coming from the one true God. They could run, but they could not hide. Now, verses five and six are a statement of God's absolute omnipotence. And Amos uses the title Lord God continually with an emphasis on the sovereignty of God. I'll read it again. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, he touches the earth and it melts and all who live in it mourn. The whole land rises like the Nile and then sinks like the river of Egypt. He builds his lofty palace in the heavens and sets its foundation on the earth. He calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land. The Lord is his name. This is God's judgment on pretense. In their case, they were throwing a cloak of religion over a life that was motivated towards self, to quote Mocha again. We've talked about this in previous weeks, how even their worship was self-satisfying, self-motivated, it was all about self. It wasn't about God, truly, and it wasn't about looking out at others either. Things hadn't changed from one Jeroboam to the next. They were using God and religion to make life secure and self-centred. I wonder if we perhaps do the same, especially when we make assumptions about God, about what God will or will not do or we cherry-pick verses and ideas from the Bible that don't challenge us and don't read the rest of it. Justin challenged us last week about reading the Word. I remember when we were struggling with infertility, I was pretty careful not to say or agree with the statement, God will give you a baby. Because who on earth was I to claim to know what the future would hold? I tried to say instead that I believe that God could give us a baby. And he did. <laughs> when you're trying to live in a faith-filled manner and yet recognise the sovereignty of God, it is a tricky line to walk. Others of us will recognise the same dilemma in the arena of healing. 
I think the important thing is to try and hold the creative tension and walk the line as best we can. God sees our hearts. So going back to verse 7, we now see God addressing Israel quite pointedly. Now here's another creative tension, got to love those in the kingdom. On the one hand, in verse 7, God is clearly a global God who deals with all peoples, and in that sense Israel is subject to him in the same way as all others. Just because they have been through the exodus did not automatically guarantee them eternal life. Mocha says a historical act of God can by his will become a means of blessing, but does not ever of itself convey the blessing. And in the verses we see that it goes on to say that all migrations of different peoples were governed by God. It wasn't just Israel. There's a challenge for us here. Just because a person lives after the death and resurrection of Jesus, for example, does not mean that a response to Jesus is not required. They and we must, they as in the Israelites, and we must not get proud and presumptuous because we think we're special. Having said that, when we get to verse 8, thankfully, we see this wonderful word, yet. He says, yet I will not totally destroy the descendants of Jacob. They were his special people. Perhaps some of them did pass the plumb line test that Marv, that Marv talked about a couple of weeks ago. God must sovereignly judge, but he also sovereignly saves. There will always be a remnant. And then coming towards the end, we have in verse 9, the picture of a sieve. So a little picture. <laughs> um, now, this isn't a sieve. When I think of a sieve, I think of draining the rice. Um, but this isn't a sieve used to drain your cooking and keep the good stuff in <coughs> whilst the water drains away. The context is of sifting soil to get rid of pebbles. He's talking about sifting grain and things. So what he's saying is he will shake his people and the pebbles will be separated out and the good soil will come through. So this is a purification that we're looking at here, not a total destruction. And joyfully, the good soil will be saved. And that puts us obviously in mind of Jesus's parable about good soil and so on. Um, it gives us that hope that he's not talking about every single person uh, in Israel at that time. So who is he talking to? Well, the, the sinners that he's addressing finally in verse 10 are those who say destruction shall not overtake or meet us. In other words, they're the ones who are complacent and careless and living in a world of pretense. So what have we learned from this passage? Well, four things stood out to me. Firstly, God is everywhere. He sees everything. He is bigger than we can possibly imagine. Now, I know we know that in our heads, but are there times when we think we can somehow hide from him? We really can't. It would be better to face up to that. Secondly, God is completely against pretense. And this should challenge us because we live in a world of image projection. He sees us absolutely, and his opinion is the only one that really matters. So why do we try and project an image? Whether it's I'm fine, or I've got it all together, or even things like, you know, how well off we are and all that kind of stuff, whatever it might be, it's a huge waste of energy. 
Our interactions with God, at least, need to be real. He is not a fan of pretense, and he's certainly not a fan of using religion for politics or to fulfil self-centred needs. It can be only about him. The third thing I think is worth um, revisiting again is the line, yet I will not completely destroy. There is always grace available. If we come to Jesus without pretense and admit our need for a saviour, we will be saved. There is a way of salvation open to all. Because Jesus has already paid the price for our sin, we just need to humbly ask his forgiveness and follow him and we will not be destroyed. And lastly, there is a danger in saying, disaster shall not overtake us. How can we possibly know all God's plans and future actions? What we do know is his character. And so we do know that he is always loving and he is always with us. But we just need to be very careful that the statements we make about God are about his character rather than a presumption of future action. That's not to say, however, that we shouldn't pray for things that we know are within his will and based on his character. For example, I believe it's always right to pray for healing because he is a good God who loves to heal. You just need to read any gospel to see that. We just don't need to make presumptions about the future. Time will tell for itself. So to finish, one last quote from Mochia, who's been a, um, a blessing as a commentator to, to us. Um, but he says it so well. He says, the true people of God is a company of sinners bearing the mark of moral and spiritual concern. They know about the sieve and are concerned to be found making the grade. They know about the plumb line and are concerned ever to hold their sinful selves within the compass of grace and to live lives conformably to law. They will remain sinners, but they will ever be sinners longing to war a good warfare against their sin, longing for holiness, loving the law of their God and resting on his grace. And they will be found worthy. The war which rages against pretense, fought with all the power of divine omnipotence, never hurts a hair of their heads. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we know that you will never hurt a hair of our head if we are uh, following you, if we've committed our lives to you. I thank you that uh, you are all about grace and there is a remnant. Amen. If you've been listening this morning and perhaps you don't have that confidence that you are safe in his hands and maybe you've glimpsed through Amos this um this side to God that perhaps doesn't get talked about that much these days, then please do talk to, to us. You can reach us through all the social media um, if you don't know us, but we would love to, to help you come to a place of confidence in God's love for you. Have a great week. We'll see you soon.